0: from kings to emperors. In the spring of 799, Pope Leo III encountered some misfortune. Leo had become pontiff four years earlier after the demise of the independent-minded Hadrian I. To welcome Leo to his office, Charlemagne had sent him a huge gift of gold and silver, confiscated from the Avars. But wealth brought trouble. For while this precious metal had enabled Leo to sponsor charitable works and luxurious building projects in Rome. it had also aroused the jealousy of those who had been close to his predecessor, Hadrian. This faction disliked the idea of strong Frankish influence in Rome. They determined to do something about it. On the 25th of April, 799, Leo was leading a procession through the city streets when several hoodlums jumped him. They wrestled him prone, stripped him of his vestments and attempted to gouge out his eyes and sever his tongue. Next they dragged the unfortunate Leo to a nearby monastery where, as one account had it, For the second time they cruelly gouged his eyes and his tongue yet further. They beat him with clubs and mangled him with various injuries which left him half dead and drenched in blood. They announced that Leo was deposed and imprisoned him in agony for more than 24 hours until some of his supporters, led by Frankish ambassadors present in Rome, found and rescued him. The experience left Leo badly hurt and very scared, but by good fortune, or as some had it, God's miraculous intervention, he was not killed or permanently blinded. And as soon as he was well enough to travel, he fled north across the Alps to seek out Charlemagne, then in Paderborn, a week or so east of Aachen, in a region he had conquered from the Saxons. Leo's choice of defender was sensible, Not only was Charlemagne well known for his piety and interest in church reform, he was also the most powerful ruler in the West, nicknamed, according to the author of the contemporary poem known as the Paderborn Epic, or Carolus Magnus et Leo Papa, as the Lighthouse and Father of Europe. Just as his papal predecessors had sought out Pippin to save them from the Lombards, so Leo now implored Pippin's son, to restore him to his dignity and his office. When Leo arrived at Paderborn, there was great celebration, of the sort that must have reminded Charlemagne of his childhood and the arrival of Pope Stephen to meet his father in 754. Charlemagne hosted Leo in great honour for some time, wrote one analyst. The author of the Paderborn epic painted a more vivid picture. Charles invites Leo to his great palace. His gorgeous court hall shines inside with colourful tapestries and its chairs are covered in purple and gold. In the middle of the high hall they celebrate a great banquet. Golden bowls overflow with Falernian wine. King Charles and Leo, the highest prelate in the world, dine together and quaff sparkling wine from their bowls. It almost sounded like fun and Charlemagne could afford to be merry. He had the Pope at his disposal. Beyond good wine and pleasantries, what high politicking took place between Charlemagne and Leo at Paderborn in 799 is not reliably recorded. Nevertheless, a deal was thrashed out, and it extended the Carolingian Papal Compact considerably. It recognised the fact that since the 750s, the Carolingians had become not only masters of Francia, but of a huge swathe of Central and Western Europe. It acknowledged that the Franks, and not the Byzantines, were now the secular defenders of the papacy. And it rewarded Charlemagne for using the spoils of his wars against unbelievers, the Muslims of Al-Andalus, the Avars and the Saxons, to sponsor his programme of building churches and monasteries. It was, in short, a deal that conferred on Charlemagne a status he had long hankered after, a title to set him alongside his hero, Constantine the Great. Charlemagne agreed to send Leo back to Rome with Frankish troops at his back and vanquish his enemies. In return, Charlemagne was to receive yet another coronation. This time, he would rise not as king, but as an emperor and Augustus. So it was that in late November 800, Charlemagne was received into Rome with the highest papal pageantry. When he arrived, Leo rode a full 12 miles outside the city limits to greet him, and later welcomed him formally on the steps of St Peter's Basilica. For several weeks, Charlemagne busied himself purging the city of papal opponents. Finally, on Christmas Day at St Peter's, he attended a mass dressed in full Roman costume, including a toga and sandals. Leo publicly crowned him emperor. Then bowed down at his feet. The chronicler Einhard later claimed, unconvincingly, that Charlemagne had been unaware of Leo's plans and was surprised to be offered such high honour. This was nonsense. Einhard's dissembling was aimed at Byzantine readers who disapproved of Charlemagne usurping the title of emperor. In fact, far from being an embarrassing accident, Charlemagne's elevation was deliberate, meticulously planned and revolutionary. It restored to Western and Central Europe the fact of Imperium, which had gone missing on the ground several hundred years earlier and which seemed to be wobbling even in Constantinople where, horror of horrors, a woman, the Empress Irene, 797-802, occupied the Byzantine throne. What took place in St Peter's that Christmas was supposed to be the resurrection of the Western Roman Empire or at least that was how Charlemagne saw it. In February 806, when he formally announced his plans to hand over his empire to his three sons, Charles, Pippin and Louis, he announced himself, in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Ghost, Charles, the most serene Augustus, the great and Pacific Emperor, crowned by God, governing the Roman Empire, and also by the mercy of God, King of the Franks and Lombards. Four centuries later, during the reign of Frederick I Barbarossa, a tradition arose where those emperors formerly crowned by a pope could call themselves Holy Roman Emperors. And in that form, the office endured until the Napoleonic Wars at the turn of the 19th century. The Empire Fractures As Charlemagne grew older, his health failed, and his associates began to observe portents of his death. For three successive years, there were frequent eclipses of the sun and moon, and a dark spot was seen on the sun for seven days, recalled Einhard. The timbers in the palace at Aachen seemed to creak eerily, as though they knew their founder was ailing, and felt his pain too. The church, in which he intended to be buried, was struck by lightning. Although Charlemagne breezily waved the omens away, acting as if none of them were related to his affairs in any way, to others the emperor's demise seemed imminent. It was. At the end of January 814, in the forty seventh year of his reign, Charlemagne came down with a fever accompanied by a pain in his side. He tried to cure himself with extreme fasting, but this made things worse. At nine o'clock in the morning on the 28th of January, the emperor died and was buried with great solemnity at Aachen. The Franks, the Romans, all Christians are stung with worry and great mourning, wrote an anonymous monk from Bobbio in northern Italy. The young and old, glorious nobles and matrons, all lament the loss of their Caesar. During his long life, Charlemagne had produced a large number of offspring. Between four wives and at least six concubines, he had 18 or more children, including his three legitimate sons, Charles, Pippin and Louis. It had been expected that the Carolingian territories would be divided among them at the time of his death, with one son taking the Iron Crown of Lombardy, another the large central and northern kingdoms of Austrasia and Neustria, and a third Aquitaine and the Spanish March. The old-fashioned Merovingian fantasy Charlemagne entertained as he made these arrangements was that his sons would rule his Christian empire in a spirit of Christian peace and harmony, dealing strictly with the various enemies on their collective borders, but peacefully with one another, tied together by the bonds of blood and mutual respect for their great European project. It did not take long for the shortcomings in this vision to appear. As it turned out, by 814, Louis, known as the Pious, was the only one of the brothers left alive. He had been crowned co-king the previous year, in anticipation of his accession, and now he took over the sprawling Carolingian Empire wholesale, with the exception of Lombardy, which was settled on a nephew called Bernard. But inevitably, Louis struggled to hold together what his father had assembled. Some of his problems stemmed from the simple magnitude of the task, governing such vast territories and defending a million square miles from attack. But many more came from within the family. From the early years of his reign, Louis struggled to find a way to satisfy the ambitions of his male relatives, including his own four sons. All now set their sights on a share in the empire, and they were not prepared to wait patiently to receive it. Within three years of Louis's accession, Bernard, king of Lombardy, the son of one of Charlemagne's illegitimate children, known as Pippin the Hunchback, began the rot. The flashpoint was the publication of a constitutional document known as the Ordinatio Imperii in 817. In it, Louis tried to clarify the hierarchy of the Carolingian Empire and make provisional plans for its rule after his own death. Louis implied, although he did not state, that when the time came, Bernard ought to recognise the supreme lordship of Louis' eldest son, Lothar. This was not particularly unreasonable, but it needled Bernard's pride. Aggrieved, he started to think of his association with the pan-European empire not as a mutually beneficial partnership, but as a binary choice between independence and subservience. Very soon, Bernard was rumoured to be plotting to break off his Italian kingdom and enjoy all the supposed fruits of full sovereignty. When these whispers reached Louis's ears, he had Bernard arrested, tried and sentenced to death. Although Louis showed what he claimed was mercy by commuting death to blinding, the punishment was sufficiently brutal that Bernard died from his tortures, a combination perhaps of blood loss, infection and shock. Besides illustrating the fragility of a European empire that was bound only by assumed common values and what the Ordinatio Imperii called mutual brotherly love, common welfare and everlasting peace, Bernard's plot and death brought down on Louis a torrent of criticism. In the high summer of 822, Louis publicly confessed his sins and did penance at a great Carolingian family meeting attended by Pope Pascal I. The pro-royal Frankish annals that described the penance were tight-lipped about the details of what took place, but emphasised that Louis apologised for more than simply killing Bernard. He took the trouble to correct with the greatest care Whatever things he and his father had done, wrote the analyst. Yet apologies and ritual contrition did not solve the basic problem. Louis had been left an empire too big for him to hold together. Between 830 and 840, a series of three major rebellions broke out, in which Louis's sons banded together in various combinations to try and improve their portions of the imperial inheritance. In keeping with Carolingian custom, many cruel, murderous and disgraceful deeds were perpetrated, including further blindings, drownings, exilings, accusations of witchcraft and adultery levelled against Louis's wife and Empress Judith, and a general commitment to naked self-advancement. In June 833, at a meeting in Rotfeldt in Alsace, Louis was confronted by his eldest son Lothar who had proven himself an attentive student of Carolingian family history and persuaded Pope Gregory the Fourth to back him as supreme ruler. Lothar's play for power spooked Louis's supporters, and almost to a man they abandoned him for his eldest son. An act of collective spinelessness which earned the meeting the nickname The Field of Lies. Louis was now a prisoner. Lothar wore the imperial crown and the son dragged his father around Europe with him, as he tried his own hand at rule. This farcical state of affairs collapsed, perhaps inevitably, under the weight of its own iniquity. Louis was restored to the crown in another family coup a year later. But the writing was on the wall for Charlemagne's empire. Like Alexander the Great before him, Charlemagne had built an empire which quickly proved itself possible only as an extension of one man's political self. Louis died in 840, at which time three of his sons were still alive. After yet another round of civil war, they decided in 843 to abandon the European dream. The Carolingian Empire was formally partitioned under the Treaty of Verdun. ...creating the three kingdoms of West Francia, the Middle Kingdom and East Francia. These approximated, respectively and very roughly, to modern France, northern Italy and Burgundy and western Germany. Further carve-ups of Western Europe would take place during the remainder of the ninth century... ...along with intermittent war between the realms whose Carolingian rulers as descendants of Charlemagne, generally fancied themselves as significantly mightier than nature had allowed. For a brief moment towards the end of the century, Charlemagne's hapless, idle and unfortunately epileptic great-grandson, Charles III, the Fat, staked a claim to all the lands of the Franks. But when he died in 888, the empire fell apart, splintering into component pieces of east and west Francia Germany, Burgundy, Provence and Italy. Many would dream during the Middle Ages of piecing all these fragments back together, but it would take nearly a thousand years for one ruler to once again hold the whole Carolingian inheritance in his hands. He was Napoleon Bonaparte, another irresistible warrior and accumulator, but one whose career only served to emphasise what Charlemagne's had done it has only been possible to unite Europe once or twice in every millennium, and even then, not for very long. Coming of the Northmen In the spring of 845, when Louis the Pious's youngest son Charles the Bald was ruling West Francia, a Danish warlord called Ragnar brought a fleet of 120 ships up the River Seine. It has sometimes been said that this Ragnar was the model for the legendary Ragnar Lodbrok, hairy britches, star of Danish chronicles, Icelandic sagas and a highly successful 21st century television series. A physically vast, sexually potent, highly skillful sailor who had sailed the high seas and snaking rivers as far afield as England and the Baltic lands of the Kievan Rus. It is hard to know for sure whether or not this is so, but either way, the Ragnar who attacked the Franks in 845 was still very dangerous. After travelling about 75 miles up the river, Ragnar and his followers disembarked their sleek ships to raid and plunder. Ships past counting voyage up the Seine, and throughout the entire region evil grows strong, wrote one despairing chronicler. Rouen is laid waste, looted and burnt. Far from exhausted, indeed now pumped up for more excitement, Ragnar's men carried on up the river until they arrived in Paris around Easter. A city of probably just a few thousand souls, Paris was not yet the powerhouse it would become in the later Middle Ages. But it was rich. The treasures of the royal abbey of Saint-Denis were especially alluring. And if there was one thing Ragnar knew how to do, it was robbing houses of God. As King of the Western Franks, Charles the Bald could not stand aside and allow this Danish hooligan to fill his boots. The Danes, along with other Northmen, or Vikings, meaning either pirates or bay-dwellers, had already been threatening the Carolingians for decades. But in recent years, the scope and scale of their raids into Frankish territory had escalated. Charles the Bald therefore assembled an army, divided it into two, One for each bank of the Seine, and went out to drive Ragnar away. It did not go to plan. Whereas long ago the Lombards had cried woe at the sight of the Franks, Ragnar and the Northmen bared their teeth. They isolated one group of Frankish warriors, took them prisoner, and rowed them to an island in the middle of the Seine, where Charles the Bald and the rest of his cohort could see but not help them. Once they had beached on the island, Ragnar summarily hanged 111 of the prisoners. Helpless to evict the Northmen, and terrified that if they stayed, there might be very little left of Paris to remember them by, Charles the Bald now agreed to pay Ragnar 7,000 pounds of silver and gold to retire. This was an astronomically large sum, and its size alone was a miserable humiliation for the Frankish king. Charles's only consolation was that he was not the only ruler to suffer the indignity of such an attack. That same year, Scandinavian fleets attacked Hamburg in Louis the German's East Francia, Frisia in Lothar's Middle Kingdom, and Saint in Aquitaine. Once upon a time, the Franks had been the most feared military force in the West. Now it was the Northmen's turn. The Northmen, or Vikings, are often said to have burst out of their coastal settlements in what is now Sweden, Norway and Denmark, at the end of the 8th century. The most famous account of their arrival into the Christian realms of the West comes from Britain. In 793, warriors appeared off the coast of Northumbria, leapt from their ships and robbed the island of Lindisfarne, desecrating the monastery and murdering its brothers. This ferocious raid sent shock waves rippling out from Britain. When the news reached Charlemagne's court in Aachen, Alcuin of York wrote to the king of Northumbria, deploring the fact that "...the church of St. Cuthbert is spattered with the blood of the priests of God, stripped of all its furnishing, exposed to the plundering of pagans." He suggested to the king that he and his noblemen might mend their ways, starting by adopting more Christian haircuts and clothing styles. But it was too late for any of that. The Northmen had announced themselves as a major power in the Western world. The next year, 794, raiders appeared on the other side of the British Isles, in the Hebrides. In 799, Vikings raided the monastery of Saint-Philibert at Noirmoutier just to the south of the River Loire. Sixty years later, Viking raids would be a painful feature of life not only in the North and Irish seas, but as far away as Lisbon, Seville and North Africa, as Northmen tangled with Anglo-Saxons, Irish, Umayyads and Franks. In 860 a band of Viking-descended warriors from what is now northwest Russia, even sailed to Constantinople via the river Dnieper and the Black Sea and laid the city under siege. Although exposed only to a tiny part of this, the chronicler of Noirmoutier wrote what could have been an epigram for the entire age. The number of ships grows, the endless stream of Vikings never ceases to increase. The Vikings conquer everything in their path, And nothing resists them. The people of Scandinavia were not somehow conjured into existence in the late 8th century. More than a millennium earlier, around 325 BC, the Greek explorer Pythias made a famous journey to the freezing northwest of the then known world and came into contact with a partly populated place called Thule, which may or may not have been Norway or Iceland. Around the same time, people living around Denmark were capable of constructing clinker-built boats. The so-called Hjortspring boat, retrieved in a bog on the Danish island of Als in the 1920s, shows that these ancient Scandinavians went to sea in vessels that held crews of 20. Over the centuries that followed, the northerners remained an acknowledged presence on the edge of the known world. In the days of Augustus, the Roman military scouted Jutland. In AD 515, a Danish ruler called Choculaikus raided Frankish territory in the Low Countries. Choculaikus may have been the model for King Hygelac, king of the Geats and uncle of the eponymous hero in the great medieval epic poem Beowulf. Yet until the 8th century, glimpses of the Northmen had been just that, few, far between and fleeting. Although the northern world was linked to trade routes that connected ultimately with the Silk Roads, the links were relatively weak and had been severely disrupted by the barbarian migrations of the 5th and 6th centuries AD. And geography itself was isolating. It is telling that in the early Middle Ages neither Christianity nor Islam touched the northern world, which remained resolutely cut off from the desert monotheisms and their worship of the book and the word until the turn of the first millennium. Left to develop on its own course, Viking culture was highly idiosyncratic, infused with the unique landscape and conditions of the lands on the Arctic fringe. The Vikings' worldview was informed particularly by climate. Possibly thanks to the shock of the great volcanic eruptions that caused global temperatures to plummet and harvests to fail during the 530s and 540s, the Viking stories of Genesis and Apocalypse revolved around the lives of trees and the impending arrival of the Fimblewinter, when the earth would freeze and all life would end. The Northmen celebrated a colourful pantheon of gods such as Odin, Ul, Balder, Thor and Loki. They knew their lives were affected by other supernatural beings too, including the female beings known as Valkyries and Filgyr, as well as elves, dwarves and trolls. They detected the magical and mystical everywhere in a varied and often extreme natural world that was vividly and deeply interconnected with the other and they interacted with this invisible realm in ways far removed from the liturgical, institutionalised forms followed by the Christians, Muslims and Jews of Europe in the Middle East, ranging from leaving offerings of food to practising ritual human sacrifice. Historians have puzzled for generations over why the Vikings suddenly, in the course of two generations, broke their relative isolation and surged out to terrorise and colonise the West. Political turmoil, cultural revolution, climate change and demographic pressure have all been proposed as causes. Like all huge questions, it has no straightforward answer. But for our purposes here, it seems to be that at exactly the moment that economic conditions and popular technologies were changing within the Scandinavian world, the Frankish world, and its established order, fell to pieces. From around the 5th century, Scandinavian boat technology had been improving, perhaps driven by the opportunities for trade around the North Sea, including the long, fjord-pocked, thousand-mile west coast of Norway. Boats became larger and faster, equipped with strong keels, powerful sails, deep, flat hulls more than 20 metres in length, and crews large enough to work in rotation for 24 hours at a time. At the same time, there was rising cultural pressure on young Viking men to travel and enrich themselves. In a society that still allowed men to marry more than one woman, and possibly to kill female babies, men had to pay a bride fee, For a prestigious marriage and to advertise their social credit. The best ways to raise this were trade and piracy, or a bit of both. Against this background then came the sweeping changes in Europe wrought by the Carolingians. Under Charlemagne, the Franks became increasingly interesting to the Northmen. For one thing, Charlemagne's campaigns against the Saxons drove the Frankish frontier north until it was nudging up against the lands of the Vikings. From AD 810 or 11, there was a Danish march in the north of the empire which served as a militarised buffer zone against the northern pagans. And for another, the Carolingians founded and enriched monasteries and other Christian holy sites – large amounts of movable wealth were placed in the hands of monks, physically the weakest men in society. Moreover, many monasteries, such as Saint-Philibert at Noirmoutier, nestled on a spit of land at the mouth of the Loire, were on the coast or beside rivers, or in locations far from secular society, where the brothers were deliberately isolated from social violence, or so they thought. These fruits could not have hung lower nor seemed riper to a society of highly mobile warrior bands equipped with the finest ships outside the Mediterranean, whose viciousness Alcuin of York compared with that of the ancient Goths and Huns. When the 830s and 840s saw the Frankish rulers falling into a mutually destructive civil war and eventually into three-way partition of the once impervious empire, it was time for the fruit to be plucked. From Vikings to Normans From the middle of the 9th century onwards, the Franks had to contend with the fact that they were near neighbours to an outwardly mobile society with ambitions that stretched across the Western world. There were few places anywhere that were off-limits to the Vikings, and as they travelled ever further afield, the nature of their attacks began to change. In place of small smash-and-grab hits on coastal targets, which had characterised their forays at the end of the 8th century, by the 9th century came huge missions equipped for siege, subjugation and settlement. Almost everywhere, established powers struggled to contain the Viking threat. In England... A great heathen army of Vikings invaded in 865, possibly led by four of Ragnar Lodbrok's sons, including Ivar the Boneless, who may have earned his name because of a disability which affected his legs. In previous generations, Vikings had preyed on monasteries and thriving cities such as London, Canterbury and Winchester. But the great heathen army, was a fully formed army of conquest, bent on breaking the power of the Saxon kings who now ruled the petty kingdoms of Northumbria, Mercia, Wessex and East Anglia. With the army travelled a settler community including many women. They had come to live, not just raid. And they succeeded. In 869, Edmund, king of East Anglia, was put to death by the Vikings. By the 880s, around half of England was under Scandinavian control or direct rule. The Viking advance was halted only after a long struggle led heroically on the Saxon side by Alfred, King of Wessex. A treaty agreed at some time between 878 and 890 formalised the partition of England with the large portion of Viking territory in the north and east of the country, known as the Danelaw. Within the Danelaw, a different legal system operated. Anglo-Scandinavian coinage circulated, including pieces emblazoned with Thor's hammer. New languages came into use and place names changed. Old gods and new commingled, as the settlers simultaneously imported the Norse pantheon and adopted the rites of Christianity. Scandinavians would retain an interest in some or all of England until 1042, when Harthacnut, joint king of Denmark and England, died. But England was only part of the picture. The Vikings traded, fought and settled on the island kingdoms of Scotland and the Irish Sea. Orkney, the Western Isles of Scotland, Man, and Anglesey. In Ireland, Viking colonists established a major kingdom around Dublin, which survived until the early 11th century. This kingdom of Dublin was built on a flourishing slave market. Slaves known as thralls, taken inland in Ireland, might be sold into servitude in lands as distant as Iceland, rubbing shoulders in slave markets with other unfortunate people captured across the Western world, from as far away as North Africa or the Baltic. Meanwhile. Thousands of miles away in Eastern Europe, Scandinavians known as the Rus began to travel in ever larger numbers towards Constantinople. By the middle of the 10th century, Byzantine emperors had come to envy the martial abilities of the Northmen so much they maintained a personal bodyguard known as the Varangian Guard, recruited from Viking stock. Norse rune graffiti can still be found at the Hagia Sophia. Possibly etched there by guardsmen called Halfdan and Ari. From Byzantium, a few intrepid northmen even reached Abbasid Persia. According to the Arab scholar and geographer Ibn Qur'adadbi, the Viking Rus traded in Baghdad in the 840s, bringing goods overland on camelback and posing as Christians to take advantage of a tax regime that offered preferential rates to people of the book over pagans. Soon, silk and slaves were being exchanged between the Viking world and the Abbasid Caliphate at a record rate, and silver Abbasid dirhams were flooding into the Scandinavian West. The Vikings seemed to be eternally expanding their global networks and the frontiers of their societies. By around the year 1000, the Scandinavian West would include settlements in Iceland, Greenland and even Vinland, Newfoundland in modern Canada. Where an abandoned Viking settlement has been excavated at Lanso Meadows. Let us return now, though, to those Northmen who invaded the world of the Franks. Although Ragnar had been paid to leave Paris alone in 845, this had by no means put an end to Viking ambitions in the Frankish kingdoms. Indeed, it seemed to many among the Franks that the Northmen would soon be the greatest power in the land. In 857, Pippin II of Aquitaine, who was disputing the kingship of that region with his uncle Charles the Bald, made a pact with the Vikings to employ their military muscle in his wars for control of the Loire Valley. Pippin was even said to have abandoned Christianity for paganism before he was killed in 864. By and large, however, Frankish rulers preferred to resist the Vikings rather than attempting to join with them. In the same year Pippin died, the Frankish Emperor Charles the Bald issued the Edict of Pitre. Amid a raft of legal pronouncements on matters such as coin production, labour laws and the plight of refugees, the Edict also ordered Frankish subjects to contribute to measures against the Vikings, including a royal bridge-building programme by which vulnerable waterways such as the Seine would have regular militarised crossings along their course guarded with forts and theoretically able to block the Northmen's boats. This worked for a time, although it did not so much send the Northmen home as divert their attentions to other parts of the region, both in Frankish lands and in England. Many parts of the Frankish world that were unprotected by bridge barriers must have felt as though they were permanently under assault. One monastic chronicler Writing around that time, wailed The Northmen ceased not to take Christian people captive and to kill them, and to destroy churches and houses and burn villages. Through all the streets lay bodies of the clergy, of laymen, nobles, and others, of women, children, and suckling babes. There was no road nor place where the dead did not lie, and all who saw Christian people slaughtered were filled with sorrow and despair. Naturally, monks wondered why God was so angry that he had sent the Vikings. Another chronicler reflected that it must have been their sins. The Frankish nation was overflowing with foul indecencies, traitors and perjurers deserve to be condemned, and unbelievers and infidels are justly punished. By the 880s, Charles the Bald was dead, his bridge defences had failed, and Viking raiders were back with a vengeance and this time they struck at the symbolic heart of the Carolingian state. In 882, a Viking army that had spent the previous winter despoiling Frisia entered the river Rhine and advanced towards Charlemagne's palace city of Aachen. They took over the palace and used Charlemagne's once-beloved imperial chapel as a stable for their horses. Throughout the Rhineland, the invaders brought to their death servants of Christ by famine or sword, or sold them beyond the sea. To the chroniclers, almost all of whom were based in monasteries and thus directly in the sights of the raiders, it seemed as if the devastation would never end. But for the Scandinavian adventurers, business was booming. One modern historian has estimated that during the 9th century, Vikings active in the Frankish lands stole or extorted in ransom and protection payments around 7 million silver pennies, approximately 14% of the total that were minted. The Carolingians had grown rich and powerful and sponsored well-endowed abbeys by plundering unbelievers on their borders. Now, that process was being ironically and very uncomfortably reversed. The hunters had become the hunted. In 885, a Viking army returned to Paris, where Ragnar had found such easy pickings four decades previously. This time the city was better defended, but the Northmen put it under siege and tormented the inhabitants for nearly a year. A famous account known as the Wars of the City of Paris by a monk, called Abbo of Saint-Germain, recounted the chaos as, Fear seized the city, people screamed, battle horns resounded, Christians fought and ran about, trying to resist the assault. For 11 months, the citizens of Paris held out, often at great cost to their lives, liberty and well-being. Eventually, in October 886, the Carolingian king of the time, Charles the Fat, appeared at the city with a relieving army. Yet to the intense dismay and disgust of the Parisians, Charles did not use his troops to grind the Vikings into the dirt. Instead, he followed the example of his predecessor Charles the Bald and paid them to leave Paris alone. Over the course of the following decade, Viking attacks on the Frankish kingdom slowed down, but the events of the 880s left an important legacy in the history of all parties concerned. For the Carolingians, a half-century of Viking attacks eventually proved fatal. Charles the Fat was seriously damaged by his craven response to the Siege of Paris. By contrast, the city's leader, Odo, Count of Paris, was lauded as a hero for his willingness to stand and fight. As a result, when Charles the Fat died in 888, Odo was elected as King of Western Francia. Odo thus became the first non-Carolingian to rule over a Frankish kingdom since the lifetime of Charles Martel. And he is remembered today as the first of the Robertian kings, the dynastic name a reference to his father, Robert the Strong. Although there would be another Carolingian king after him, and the further branches of the Carolingian family would produce claimants to the western and eastern Frankish thrones until the middle of the 10th century, no ruler was ever again able to do as Charles the Fat had briefly done and rule the full empire assembled by Pippin and Charlemagne. Undone by their own family rivalries, the challenges of holding together such a vast and culturally diverse collection of territories and peoples and the depredations of the Northmen, as well as other enemies on their eastern frontiers, including the Magyar tribal groups who had started to launch massive raids into imperial territory from what is now Hungary, the Carolingians drifted, generation by generation, from preeminence to irrelevance. Behind them, they left to the Middle Ages several distinct polities. Western Francia became the Kingdom of France. Eastern Francia became an empire centred on Germany and northern Italy that would in time become known as the German or Holy Roman Empire. Middle Francia, sometimes known as Lotharingia, was gradually squeezed out of existence. For long stretches of the later Middle Ages, and well into the early modern period, France and the German Empire would be the dominant powers on the European continent. Their successor states, France and Germany, occupy the same status in the early 21st century. Yet there was another political entity that emerged from the age of Carolingians and Vikings. Over time, the Northmen evolved from Scandinavian raiders to become the rulers of more conventional, mainstream Christian states of the West. Most obviously, these included the kingdoms of Sweden, Norway and Denmark. There were also notable Viking-ruled kingdoms around the North Sea and Irish Sea, ranging from the small island kingdom of Orkney and the Irish kingdom of Dublin to the massive Danelaw, which consisted of much of modern England, as well as the Kievan Rus a vast patchwork of territories in modern Russia, Belarus and Ukraine, which was ruled over by the Viking Rurik dynasty, whose roots lay in eastern Sweden. Yet none was so influential on the subsequent course of medieval history as that which they carved out from the Frankish state, the realm of the Northmen, or Nordmania, known as Normandy. The creation of Normandy was directly linked to the dramatic siege of Paris in 885-6. Among the Viking leaders of that expedition was a man called Rollo, or Hrolfer, who was probably born in Denmark and whose career was described by a later biographer, Dudo of San Quentin, in idealised but undeniably thrilling terms. Dudo described Rollo as a preternaturally tough and dogged soldier. Trained in the art of war and utterly ruthless, who could typically be seen in a helmet wonderfully ornamented with gold and a mail coat. Rollo was one of the most violent men of his exceptionally bloody times. On one occasion he prevailed in battle by ordering his men to kill all their animals, chop their carcasses in half, and build a makeshift barricade out of freshly butchered meat. But he was a canny negotiator. During the second half of the ninth century, Rollo made a tidy living among the Franks, doing as all thrusting young Northmen did, burning, laying towns and villages to waste, plundering and killing. By the early years of the 10th century, he and his Viking comrades had driven the rulers of the Franks to distraction, and their people to a state of abject war-weariness. According to Dudo's account, in 911, following a spate of Viking raiding, the subjects of the then king of West Francia, Charles the Simple, petitioned their ruler, complaining that the land in the Frankish realm was no better than a desert, for its population is either dead through famine or sword, or is perhaps in captivity. They urged him to protect the realm, if not by arms, then by counsel. Fatefully, Charles agreed. By a treaty, probably sealed at saint clair sur epte halfway between Rouen and Paris, Rollo came in from the cold, agreeing a pact of love and inextricable friendship with the Franks. Under its terms, he undertook to give up raiding, marry the king's daughter Gisela, and convert to Christianity. Whether the marriage to Gisela took place is uncertain, not least because Rollo had previously seized and taken into either concubinage or wedlock, another young woman by the name of Popper of Bayeux. But Rollo certainly did accept baptism. He was imbued with the Catholic faith of the sacrosanct trinity, wrote Dudo, and caused his own counts and warriors and his entire armed band to be baptised and instructed through preaching in the faith of the Christian religion. He also changed his name, to that of his new godfather, Robert, the future Robert I, King of the Franks. This was quite a U-turn for a man who had made his name robbing churches, but it was worth it, for in return, Charles the Simple granted Rollo all the land spreading out from the Seine Valley, which would come to be known as Normandy. The newly Christian Viking now controlled the riverine approach to Paris, along with a swathe of famously fertile landscape and a coastline studded with strategically useful ports from which passing sea traffic, as well as vessels bound for nearby England, could be monitored. It was clear to Dudo at least who had got the better deal, as the chronicler illustrated by way of an anecdote. When the time came to make formal submission to Charles the Simple to seal their deal, Rollo declared, I will never kneel before the knees of another, nor will I kiss anyone's foot. Instead, he asked one of his henchmen to do the job on his behalf. The warrior, wrote Dudo, immediately grasped the king's foot and raised it to his mouth and planted a kiss on it, while he remained standing, which laid the king flat on his back. So there rose a great laugh and a great outcry among the people. So with the farcical sight of the hapless Frankish king Charles the Simple upended on his backside, the Viking Duchy of Normandy came into being. Rollo, or Robert as he was now known, ruled between 911 and his death in 928 when he handed over his son William Longsword, who expanded Normandy's borders through military campaigns against his neighbours, before being assassinated in 942. At this point, two generations after Rollo's conversion, it might be assumed that the new Norman leader's essential Vikingness would have been diminished, but it was not quite so. Under them, Scandinavian settlers flooded into Normandy and although over time they mixed, married and integrated with the Frankish inhabitants of Normandy, the Normans retained a sense of themselves as a people apart long into the Middle Ages. Rivalry between the Dukes of Normandy and Kings of France would be a pronounced and important feature of the 11th and 12th century political landscape in the West, especially after the year 1066, when Rollo's great-great-great-grandson, William the Bastard of Normandy, launched his invasion of England, sending a flotilla of ships across the Channel to kill his rival, Harold Godwinson, and seize the English crown. In the famous Bayeux Tapestry, which tells the story of the Norman Conquest in embroidered comic strip format, William's ships are distinctly Viking in appearance, with ornate carved prows and large square sails. Norman Dukes would rule England until 1204, and with the wealth and military resources of the English crown behind them, were able to cause enormous trouble for the French kings, many of whom would rue the day that Charles the Simple had innocently handed over a large corner of his kingdom to a gang of hard-nosed men of the north. All this said, however, If there was one area where the Norman Dukes did depart wholesale from their Viking roots, it was in their Christianity. The Franks had converted to Christianity centuries earlier, and as we have seen, their intimate political and ritual connection to the church had been a source of enormous prestige and soft power. By contrast, in the Scandinavian world, Christianity was a long time coming. Even at the dawn of the 1100s, pagan beliefs still commingled freely with advancing Christian rights among more conservative tribal people in Sweden. But the Vikings who colonised Normandy were distinct and different. They converted early and decisively and never looked back. Perhaps no more intriguing example may be found than that of Duke Richard II of Normandy, who ruled between 996 and 1026. Richard's grandmother was a Breton woman called Sprotta, whom Richard's grandfather, William Longsword, took captive during a raid on Brittany and forcibly married in what was euphemistically termed the Danish fashion. Richard grew up in regular contact with his distant cousins in the Scandinavian world and was never shy of employing Viking mercenaries in his military campaigns. Yet he was a duke who looked in both directions. On the one hand, he lived in the same century as Rollo. Norse blood flowed in his veins. But Richard II was also, unquestionably, a man of the Frankish world, a Christian, the first Norman ruler to use the title Duke, Dux, and the man who commissioned Dudo of Saint-Quentin to write the history of his family, from which we learn about Rollo's conversion and his assumption of power within the Frankish world. So far from robbing monks, Richard II actively sponsored and patronised them, and not only in Normandy. This child of Viking heritage and Frankish temperament was so well known for his pious generosity that every year Christian monks from the Sinai Desert in Egypt travelled the better part of 5,000 kilometres to Normandy to beg alms from Richard for their upkeep. The poachers had become world-famous gamekeepers. The Normans would climb further still on their journey from scourges of the church to its fiercest defenders, as we shall see when we turn to the Crusades in chapter 8. But before that, it is time for us to look at some of the other powers that rose to shape the West between the 10th and 12th centuries. Unlike those we have surveyed so far, they were not empires or dynasties, but supranational movements centred on religious and military expertise. The groups we will examine in the next two chapters produced perhaps the Middle Ages' most enduring archetypes whose images spring immediately to mind whenever we think of this period and whose costumes are a mainstay of all good fancy dress outfitters. They are monks and knights.